Hello, and welcome to the Scriptures Are Real podcast. This is the podcast where we talk about elements that have made the Scriptures become more real to us, because we believe that the more real they become, the more power we can draw out of them, and we need all the help we can get. I'm your host, Kerry Mulestein, and I'm very excited about our episode today. It's a special episode. We've never done anything like this on, uh, on the Scriptures Are Real. Uh, we're going to have kind of a roundtable, and in fact, it's going to be even a different roundtable than you may think, because I've got two guests with me right now, and then we'll have a third guest on another time. We couldn't arrange a schedule to have all three of us at once, but that's okay. Um, and and all of them are returning guests. So I have with me today uh, both Trevin Hatch and Avram Shannon, who have both uh, been guests multiple times on the program, uh, and, and uh, later we'll have Jeff Chadwick. Uh, all three of them because of various studies that they've done, uh, have some uh, interesting perspectives on the Pharisees and who the Pharisees are and, uh, and what roles they play in the New Testament, what roles they play after the New Testament, and, and how we should think about them. Because I think in general, as a church membership, we, we kind of simplify uh, what we think the Pharisees are, and we think bad guys. That's just kind of all we think. And, uh, and that's not the full picture. Um, and I don't think of the, the four of us that uh, will be part of this, I don't think any of us have exactly the same ideas and opinions, but, but I think in many ways we agree, and there may be a couple points we'll, we'll push each other on, and that's what I thought would be fun about this. I, I think we can uh, uh, agree and push uh, amicably because we all like each other, and that's what scholarship does anyway. We're used to it. So um, uh, we're going to start with Trevin. Uh, and take just a second, Trevin, to tell us how you got into studying the Pharisees. You know, we don't want to take too long because we want lots of time for the, the meat of the discussion. And then why don't you tell us just kind of uh, some general information that might help us understand the Pharisees. Okay. Yeah, thanks. Um, yeah, the, the, in, a, in a nutshell, I wrote my master's thesis on the Pharisees at Baltimore Hebrew University. And then I wrote, uh, after I got to BYU, I wrote a book called A Stranger in Jerusalem. And most of the second half deals with uh, Jesus's relationship with his peers, primarily the Pharisees. Um, we deal with the positive and, and the hostile uh, rhetoric about Pharisees and make sense of that. And now I'm writing another, an academic book right now, where I deal with how uh, the first Christian schism between Paul and, and a lot of those issues that we read about in Acts, how that shaped the Gospels and the Pharisees have a big role in all of that. So um, I love this topic and I think it's important and we'll explain why it's important throughout you know, this is not just some esoteric kind of fringe topic that doesn't really matter. I think it matters a great deal. And Avram and Carrie and I will probably explain why at some point why it's an important topic. So, OK, I can jump in if you want me to, to explain. A little bit. So before even getting to the Gospels, we have data from I mean, we have data in the Gospels and in Acts. And it's pretty solid data because you can compare Matthew to Mark and Matthew to Luke. And you can compare it to what Paul is saying. Uh, as a Pharisee traveling around, he's using his Pharisaism a badge of honor. And we'll talk about some of that. But even before that, we have Josephus. Well, Josephus is written after, during or after the Gospels. But uh, before we get to the Gospels, we have Josephus. And Steve Mason is probably one of the world's leading scholars on Josephus. He does the Brill Josephus Translation Project. But he wrote a book in the 90s, a groundbreaking book on the Pharisees in Josephus. His 500-page book, he details every place, and what the basically what he shows is that the Pharisees are popular with the masses, the, po the populace. They didn't, they did not like the Sadducees. They they did not have a good relationship with the Sadducees, the Sanhedrin, the Temple establishment. 
They had to work with them on occasion. Um, you have, so Josephus, uh, I can go through just a real quick litany of things that he talks about uh, the, uh, the Pharisees. And that is, number one, they were the most lenient in punishment of a lot of the other groups, most of the other groups. And he kind of says that in passing. He doesn't, he doesn't make it a point. He, Josephus's bias is actually against Pharisees. He seems to lament in many places that the populace like the Pharisees. The populace see them as even prophets. They don't use the word prophets, but they say they that the populace believes them to have the spirit of prophecy and they can have a foreshadow of seeing, you know, of prophesying. Um, and he's kind of annoyed by it. Some scholars think that Josephus himself is a Pharisee because he says it in his in his autobiography. But Steve Mason challenges that in an article, and he says, no, he's not a Pharisee. The language he's using is that he follows the rulings of the Pharisees. And in another place, he shows how the Sadducees do the same thing. He says the Sadducees follow the rulings of the Pharisees because the populace follow the Pharisees. So that's important to know Josephus' bias, because when he says they're the most lenient in punishment, we can compare that to the Gospels. He says that they avoid a life of luxury and like delicacies in diet. He said they don't speak against the elderly. They respect they respect the elderly, and so he so we we take this these Pharisees and then we go into the text and say okay give me some examples, and he gives examples of two or three different places where the Sanhedrin meet. They want to kill somebody. They're going to give a you know they're going to um, it's a punishment a death penalty, and it's always the Pharisee who says no. They need a they need a better trial, and the, that punishment is excessive of the crime. One guy's name is Simaeus. He steps in and he saves. Um, he saves this. He's a Pharisee and he saves this this guy. We can compare that to the Gospels, where you have Gamaliel does the same thing. Uh, he's a Pharisee uh, supposedly. You have um, other in Acts. You have Sadducees and Pharisees, where Paul is before them, and Paul knows that they hate each other, and he throws out a doctrine about resurrection, and they start arguing. It's the Pharisees in that setting who want to save Paul, it's the Sadducees who want to kill them. Nicodemus is one who steps up in Jesus's trial and says, wait a minute, shouldn't we have a, a better, more responsible trial for Jesus? And so you can compare that. Uh, I'll mention another thing real quick, and that is the Nadezi scrolls. The scrolls do not mention Pharisees uh, specifically, but there's a text called 4QMMT. This is K4 at Qumran. The MMT stands for, the Hebrew is Miksat Ma which is the legal ruling. It's, the, it's a legal letter. And basically what that is, is this group of people saying, they, we, they broke away from Jerusalem, the Jerusalem Sadducees. They broke away, they write a letter to the Sadducean group, and they say, we broke away from you because you're corrupt. You're following this other group of people they didn't say the Pharisees, but they say, you're following this other group of people, and it's corrupting the whole system. This Qumran community calls themselves the sons of Sadok. Uh, some people call them Sadducees. A lot of scholars are saying they're Sadducees, but they also call themselves sons of Sadok. This is Zadok, the high priest at the time of David. This is where we get Sadukim or Sadducees. And in the letter, they say, here are five legal rulings where we disagree with this group that you're following, you Jerusalem Sadducees, this group they're following, there's five legal rulings where we disagree. And these are major debates. If you compare that to the Mishnah and the Tosefta, which these are early rabbinic texts, and Avram might talk about that. They also, in some of those texts in about eight different places, mention those same five rulings as classical disagreements between Pharisees and Sadducees. So we take all this data, the rabbinic period, uh, we take Josephus, 
we take a little bit in Maccabees, a little bit in the scrolls, and then we can compare it to the Gospels and the Acts. And so um, maybe just one or two more minutes just to touch on a few things in the Gospels. My major argument is that if we take all that data and we go to the Gospels, I do not find that the Pharisees are these evil, reprehensive, you know, people of ill repute who are trying to chase Galilean holy men around the Galilee to kill them or to stone women in Jerusalem. Um, I break down all of those, all of those episodes in the book, and I show what percentage of the passages about Pharisees are positive or seemingly positive, seemingly negative. And I go through each one, and it really is a very, very small core of passages. There's probably eight different passages where it's very hostile. You guys are hypocrites, you're whitewashed tombs. And, and then I spend an entire chapter talking about those eight in the context of rhetoric, ancient, classical, uh, polemic, and invective, where you have Aristotle, people like Aristotle and Cicero writing whole books on how to defeat your philosophical opponent. Their books are about how to, to engage rhetorically your opponent. And they say, what you have to do is explain to the populace how you're different and use words like hypocrites, say that they, they preach for money and that they're they just they're money grubbers. And they even use phrases like these people are, they wear these nice robes, but they're little scrawny wicked people underneath. Like if they took off their majestic robe, you'd see this little evil like scrawny person. Matthew, my argument is that he takes, he uses this convention of rhetoric and he, he does, he absolutely does this in Matthew 23, where he does the same thing. You're whitewashed tombs, rotting corpse. It's, uh, I detail all the language, all the terminology in the classical world about your opponent. And that's where I paint, that's where I put those very few uh, hostile passages about Pharisees. This fits a late first century setting, in my opinion, not a setting in the 20 and the 20s. Uh, and we can detail that out later, but uh, that's kind of like a really quick crash course uh, of, of my view and also the sources. So, Avram, it's up to you. All right. Yeah, thank you. Go ahead, Aura. Yeah, thanks, Trevin. Thanks, Carrie. So with that, and, and part of I think that's kind of building off of Trevin's point. So I got into this because my primary area of research is actually Mishnah and Tosefta and Rabbinic Judaism. So I primarily study these, these later sources, these sources from later Judaism. But of course, part of the, the whole thing with this, and Trevin kind of alluded to this a little bit, part of the difficulty is, is that, not distinctively to Latter-day Saints, but sometimes in 2,000 years of history, we've taken some of those polemical passages that Trevin alluded to and applied them not just to Pharisees, but then across the board to Judaism. And suddenly, this first century disagreements between Jesus' followers and the Pharisees become a root for anti-Semitism. And that's part of why it's so important to have this conversation, because we need to be better than that. Um, the, and, and, and so we're, I'm going to talk a little bit there about this. But as for the first thing to think through this is, is recognizing that Jesus and all of his earliest followers were Jewish. And so any discussions or disagreements between Jesus and Pharisees are going to be discussions between Jews. Now, Jesus is obviously unique and special. And, you know, I mean, but but one of the intriguing things as you read the Gospels in particular, it's worth noting 
that Jesus comes and lives as a first century Jew. As far, he's you know, very I, Jewish. He's very Jewish. Um, and, and in some ways, this is kind of um, a way of thinking through, you know, knowest thou the condescension of God from um, first Nephi there. Part of the condescension of God is that Jesus comes and lives the world he lives in. And so, and, and this is, um, actually, this is kind of interesting as we think through the essential Jewishness of this, because part of what people have done, and we'll, we'll see that there's reason for this and reason to unpack this, is they draw a straight line between Pharisees in Josephus in um, the New Testament to the sages, to the rabbis of the Mishnah Tosefta, and then from there to the rest of Judaism. And there's a line, but it's not really a straight line. And we'll talk about that. One of, the, one, one of my favorite little facts about this is there are only two people, two people who are called rabbi in a first century document. Okay, so our earliest um, source, our earliest attestations for the title rabbi. There are only two people. They are John the Baptist and Jesus Christ, and it's in the Gospels. Gosp the Gospels are actually our first use of the word rabbi, and it's not even to refer to the Pharisees. It's to talk about Jesus and John the Baptists. But that's hard to see in our translation, especially in the Gospel of Mark. Almost everywhere in Mark where it says master, the Hebrew, the, I mean, the Greek there says rabbi. Um, but again, probably because of this sort of latent and sometimes overt anti-Semitism on the part of the translators, they're trying to push Jesus away from this Jewishness. And so part of the thing I think is really key to see is that if you were looking at Jesus' earliest followers and somebody were ask you, what Jewish group are they? You'd say Pharisees. The Pharisees are the closest Jewish group. It's no, it, it, you know, Paul, this early Christian, is a Pharisee. And the, it seems to be the Jews that are, that are largely attracted to this are Pharisees. And actually, even in the New Testament, when Jesus is interacting with the Pharisees, they will ask him legal questions. Why do you um, do this on the Sabbath? Why do you, you know, the, the, you know, why don't you, why don't your disciples wash hands? And Jesus doesn't say, oh, I'm God, I do whatever I want. He makes legal arguments. He says, haven't you heard of um, Abiathar and David? There's precedent in scripture for what I'm doing. Don't you know about this? I.e., Jesus is engaging on a legal level with these Pharisees. So it's not that law and interpretation are bad. Actually, even there in the great, you know, polemic against Phariseeism, in the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus says, what they say to do, you guys should still do. But don't do what they're actually doing, which is not doing what they're saying they're doing. The problem for Jesus is not the legal interpretation as such. The problem is how they are, how they're not even doing what they say they're supposed to be doing. And I think um, for me, that, that's part of it, it built in this. And it's intriguing as you go through and look at the rabbis, because what you find, even in the sages, is I think one of the key things to think through about Pharisees. One, Trevor already alluded to this. Almost all of our evidence for Pharisees is actually biased against them. Okay. I mean, our best, our, our three best sources are Josephus, which I would point out is biased against them. New Testament, who is 
not bias handsome as such, but still has that rhetorical stuff that uh, Joe was talking about. And the sages, who are, again, also very late. And so, and so part of it, as we kind of reconstruct the Pharisees, we recognize that we're kind of pulling it from a different perspective, from these various places. We have nobody who's a Pharisee in the Pharisees saying, this is what we believe. Uh, we have people saying, this is what you guys believe. Even the sages, okay, and this is where it's intriguing. Even though the rabbis, there's a lot of points of connection. Of, of connection. Uh, Alvaram, can I interrupt just, and just really? ask uh, most of our audience have not heard the term sages. Can you just uh, okay. tell us what you mean by that? Surely. So we talk about, so so rabbi is a is a, is a Hebrew word that means my teacher, okay, um, from the um, rab. Um, that's why it's translated oftentimes as master and things like that, and master in terms of teacher. Um, but that's not really, so in our earliest sources, Mishnah and, so Rabbi is a title that shows up in our sources, but they call themselves the, the Hochmim, the sages. Okay, so the standard word for the, uh, for, in these rabbinic sources, they call themselves the sages. Yeah, and that, and that comes from that root of Hochmim, for being wise, right? Yeah, Which the wise ones. Where so yeah. sage comes from, yeah. Okay, yeah. sorry, thank you, keep going. Yeah, surely. And so, and so what we have is we have these places, there's, so according to Josephus of the New Testament, the Pharisees believe in oral law. And by the way, oral law is not 100%, not this, oh, we get to change the law for whatever we want to do. Oral law is specifically a discourse on how you keep the commandments. So, for example, you do something like in Exodus 20. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy and do no work. Okay. What counts as work? Exodus doesn't tell you. And anybody who sat in a Relief Society or Elder Quorum lesson where you spent an hour trying to hash out what you can do on the Sabbath and what you can't do shows you that this question is not a dead question. This is, even for Christians, this is an open question. And that discourse, how you keep the commandments, that the Hebrew word for it is halakha, but that discourse is fundamentally where the discourse happens. And kind of as Trevin pointed out, that letter from the Benet Sadok in Four Kriyamanti to the presumably Jewish from Sadducees are about questions of halakha. How not not should you keep the commandments? And the question never is, even with Jesus, how do we keep the um the Sabbath? Should we keep the Sabbath? That's that's never on the table. The question only is. How do you do it? And honestly, it's, it's not even what you're doing is bad. The question, even in, in, in the Gospels, is how do you justify, how do you explain your halakha? And Jesus gives them an answer. And they're like, oh. And th th there's no sense, by the way, even in the Gospels, that the Pharisees are like, oh, you're wrong. They're like, oh, okay. You've got, you've got, a, just, you've got a halakha explanation. You've got an explanation for how you do this. And so when we, when we look through into the, um, the sages, what we find is, so the rabbis, and specifically in Mishnah, uh, Mishnah Yadaim 4, 6, and 7, that's really where we see the connections between 4, 2, MMT that um, Trevin was talking about. And it's really about washing hands and purity laws. And it, it, it labels differences between the Sadducees and the Pharisees on purity laws, what's impure, what's pure. But there's an intriguing passage in there where Yohanan ben Zakkai, who's one of these really big names, Rabbi literature says, we have nothing we disagree with the Pharisees except for this. And so although the, the rabbis of the Mishnah accept oral law and accept many of the same beliefs of the Pharisees, they do not see themselves 
as Pharisees. They see, and, and, and part of it, see the argument, and, and Neusner makes this, Jacob Neusner is a really great scholar in Jewish studies. He's, he's dead now, but he wrote, published a bazillion books on um, Judaism, him and his students. Um, and uh, Neusner um, points out that there seems to be a desire that Pharisee, and we see this especially in Josephus, Pharisee comes to be very much associated with political movements, especially with the Jewish revolts. All right, the zealots you sometimes see in the New Testament and in Josephus are in some ways a subsect of the Pharisees. And it looks like in the sages that there's a desire to sort of step back from some of that. And so all there, there's coming out of a similar notion of oral law, resurrection, these kinds of things. They're also saying, but we're not that. We're something a little bit different. And again, part of this is, and this uh, kind of goes to Jeff's, I mean, to Trevin's point, I'm not to Jeff yet, but Trevin's point, Jeff says it in other places too, this notion of the polemics, right? I often ask students this, right? When we're, when we're teaching this in classes, you know, who writes anti-Mormon literature? It's not Buddhists, primarily. It's evangelical Christians and ex-Latter-day Saints because polemics are primarily about boundary making. They're about how are you different from them. And so as we see the Pharisees described, even in the sages, we're like, they're saying the way they're things that we say, oh, we're definitely the same. We are definitely not the same. And especially you see something like um the art, you know, the stuff in the New Testament. It's this notion of we're pretty similar here, but these are places where we're definitely different. And that boundary maintenance becomes so key, especially since all of our sources are fundamentally not Pharisaic, talking about how they are different from the Pharisees. That's true of Josephus, New Testament, and of the rabbis. Uh, that's good stuff. Th thank you both. That's, so that's, I mean, you both could really take on these topics for easily each of you half an hour more or more. Uh, that's wonderful. But this is a good introductory stuff. So I want to ask a couple of questions, of, and, and some of these may be for one or the other. So hopefully it's some of them we all talk about. Um, that just have arisen from the things you, you've talked about. So maybe I'll start a, a little bit with um, a question to you, Trevin, just based on something that you said. And, and then uh, I've got a question um, for uh, Avram and then a, a number of things that I think we can just all discuss together. So uh, Trevin, you mentioned uh, the, the polemics, uh, like why did sepulchers and so on, that it seemed to be Matthew uh, writing this and and maybe a little bit later now of course the way it's written he has jesus saying this right so my question is are, are is this something that jesus said in 30 uh, or so 30 ish um ad or is this something that matthew or someone else is adding 50 90 something like that ad that as it's a later edition or, or or what are you saying i mean it kind of sounded like you're saying this is a later edition that that comes from a political context and it's not something the savior said at all uh okay that, that's a perfect question and it could open up a massive can of can of worms but let me do this yeah in yeah two or three minutes okay okay uh, um my argument and what I'm actually doing in this upcoming book is, and I did it a little bit in my previous book, but I, I wanted to So why don't you tell us again the title of that book and of your upcoming book so the people who want to look at this and learn more can, can do that. Okay, uh, the book, the, the first book is A Stranger in Jerusalem, Seeing Jesus as a Jew. And I dealt with the Pharisees and I make an argument that 
Jesus and Pharisees are very cordial. Jesus and his disciples are even coming out of the Pharisee tradition, even if they weren't Pharisees proper, you know. But uh, what can we say about, we can say all day long, we can talk about how they're, you know, great friends and they're inviting each other to dinner as honored guests. But you have to deal with the elephant in the room, which is the hypocrites and all that kind of stuff. And so how I contextualize that is through the Jerusalem Council or basically in Acts 15, the short story is that when Paul is traveling around the Roman Empire and he's bringing in people into the Jesus movement, there's a, a big rift that happens in Antioch. We read about this in Galatians where you have Peter and Barnabas eating. They decide to eat uh, with non-Jews and Paul is eating with Jews and it makes Paul furious. And he says, you guys are basically hypocrites. We're not supposed to be doing this. Uh, we should be eating together. And this causes a need for a bigger discussion in Jerusalem. So in Acts 15, you go there and you get everybody's arguments. You get James, you have Paul about should these non-Jews who are coming into the Jesus movement, the question is, should they become Jews to join the movement or should they become, can they stay like non-Jews and just be baptized and not have to follow Jewish law? And, 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 then, and maybe I'll just uh, rephrase that just to, for our audience uh, because I know many audience members, if they hear Jesus movement, they, they say, okay, that, that, that's that's a weird way of saying it. Okay. So, but what you're saying is become Christian. If you're going to become Christian, right. if you're going to accept Jesus and, and worship with us in the way that we're worshiping and talking about, I believe the things that we're talking about, which is to become Christian, do you have to essentially become Jewish? Or is there a, such a thing as a Gentile Christian that doesn't have to do any of the Jewish things? That's, right. that's And even though, reason. sorry, Carrie, I didn't mean to have to do there. Well, that's all right. Is, is that basically what you're saying? And then let's let Avram jump in. Um, yeah, I'm saying that. And then um, because of that, well, you want to go to Avram and then come back to me? Yeah, 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 yeah. I, just, I just want to point out that this is actually for you and I coming after 2000 years of Christian history, where, as Trevor has pointed out, this question is solved. This is actually a really big question because yeah. the even the idea of there being a Christ, a Messiah, is a fundamentally Jewish question. Yeah. And so, and so this idea of who we, you know, can you, can you worship, can you follow Christ, can you follow the Jewish king, the Messiah, without being Jewish is a much bigger question than it seems to us looking back on it 2,000 years later. Agreed. And, and I think we have to keep in mind all, like maybe 99.9%, you've got a, you know, Samaritan woman and a woman in uh, Lebanon and so on, but really all of the earliest <laughs> followers of Jesus are Jewish. And when 100%. the church is started and spreading, it's Jews who are doing it. It's a it's a Jewish thing. And they it's when Christ says that, you know, we get this in the Book of Mormon, the law is fulfilled in me, and so on and so on. They're not interpreting that as we have to stop keeping all of the law of Moses. They don't interpret it that way at all. Right. And then we have to throw in the what has uh, I don't think it's originally part of the law of Moses, but what has become a very Jewish thing. That, that you separate yourselves from Gentiles uh, and you remain separate in, and to the point where you, some, you're even thought of as a sinner if you're eating with a Gentile, right? So, uh, and that's part of what Peter has to wrestle with when he has this vision and, and he's like, I can even interact with a Gentile? No, no, I've never done that kind of a thing, right? So that's part of what we have to deal with. So all, that's all background to get us back to where you were going, uh, Trevin. Okay, yeah, perfect. That's great. And so what, what happens is they go to Jerusalem and they have this big, debate and it's really almost a riot probably too strong a word but the greek word is stasis which means a, a, a dissension like people are mad 
And essentially you have, um, Paul stands up and he says, look, they, he gives his argument, they only need to be immersed, they don't need to follow their Jewish law, any other Jewish law. James stands up and he says, yeah, okay, they need to be immersed, but they can't, there's also these other things that they should do that's mentioned in, um, like Exodus, Leviticus, actually Leviticus, like 17 and 18, and he says, you can't eat meat from like a strangled animal, you can't eat meat that was prepared for idols, you, got, you can't fornicate, uh, you have to be, uh, you know, immersed. And then a lot of people miss the third group of, that stands up. And that's the Pharisees. In Acts 15, 5, it says the Pharisee followers of Jesus stood up and they gave their uh, position. Now, for me, it, it helps my argument because if you're given the microphone, it's such a big stage of that, so to speak. And you, you must have a bigger following of Pharisees. You represent sort of the Pharisee, like ultra Jewish faction of the Jesus, of the, of the Christian movement. Then that, that mean, means you have some authority. Okay. And what they say is no. If you come in, you have to follow all of Jewish law. You have to be circumcised because that's what it says in Exodus. If foreigners want to come in and, and eat with Jews, especially during Passover, you have to be, any anybody who wants to become a member of the house of Israel has to be circumcised. That's their, that's Jewish law. The Pharisees are saying, we're not going to take anybody else unless they follow the entire law. And when the church sides with Paul, my argument is that it causes this massive uh, rift, massive schism, and the Pharisees are furious. And even Paul's still furious because he thinks Pharisees are going around. It says people from Jerusalem are going around the Roman Empire telling Jesus' followers that you do not, that you have to be circumcised. So then Paul shows up, and this is in Corinthians and Galatians and Romans. He says, I'm tired of all these people from Jerusalem coming here and telling you that you have to be circumcised. If they want to do that, I hope they castrate themselves. Like he's furious. He calls them dogs. He calls them so-called leaders, so-called apostles. And you, you Oh, Paul. Yeah, right? yeah he's, he's really upset. And so my argument is that by the that's going on in the 50s and 60s, 40s, 50s and 60s. By the time you get to the 70s and 80s, when the Gospels are being finally written down, um, I'm arguing that Mark is a Pauline. He's siding with the pro-Gentile inclusive, like his Gentile inclusive uh, group. Matthew is even though he's a Jewish writer, he's also favorable to Gentiles, favorable to Pilate, favorable to the centurion, favorable to the Magi or not Jews. And he's demonizing Pharisees. And notice what the common argument between Jesus and the Pharisees are. A mealtime setting, just like in Antioch, a mealtime setting where the question is, Jesus, what do you do with people who've removed themselves, who are outside the house of Israel, who've engaged with prostitutes or who are money uh are tax farming um practices with with, with romans or whatever uh, what do you do with them and we see this in three or four cases in luke where he's eating with them where he's they're talking about you know they, they give their arguments pharisees say they can't belong in here they, they, they shouldn't come in here they're impure and jesus says well they we have to try to bring them back and, and bring them in that's the running debate and so that debate continues even when Jesus is going down to, like, he leaves the Galilee and goes to Jerusalem, the reason why he goes to Jerusalem is because Pharisees warn him of Herod Antipas. And then Pharisees follow him down the Jordan Valley to Jericho, and we get these stories where they ask him the same debate. What do you do with, you know, these people on the outside? It's the same debate. And Jesus gives some parables that talk about, you know, the, the lost sheep and the prodigal son. But that that's the setting that I put it in. Matthew is making political arguments against Pharisaism and against their um, against their argument about who should belong in the group. And it happens all the time where a woman comes and she can't. Uh, Jesus says, "I'm I'm not gonna 
I've not come to Gentiles, I've come to Jews. And a woman says, yeah, but even dogs get uh, the remainder of the plate, you know? And so he says, okay, because of your faith, I'm bringing you in. Again, that's a message, a political message to Christian opponents who are the Pharisees who used to be part of the group, right? That's what Abram's talking about, yeah. this close association that splinters, and then it becomes just an absolute rhetorical war. That's the setting that I put Matthew in. So yeah, I'm not putting uh, some of that on Jesus. I'm saying that they read into it. And if you can allow me 30 more seconds, can I give one example? Yeah. One example is in Matthew 23, where uh, he, this is the one where he's saying, you know, you're a hypocrite. You're what, you know, he's just, he's just blasting them. But it's telling two things. If you call someone hypocrite, hypocrites or play actor in that Roman setting, you're saying that um, it, it doesn't mean somebody who preaches something and then does the other thing. It's somebody who's doing the right thing but they're acting. It's like a play actor. It's those who are, who are, who are acting as somebody they're not. So to call some, to say somebody who's acting right, like they're, they're doing what they're supposed to, but their heart is not in the right place. Right. When you're, when you're judging someone's heart, he, Matthew's admitting, like he, he's giving a, a hat tip to them on accident. He's admitting that they actually live what they preach, but their heart is really like, their the heart's not really in it. Like they really don't believe what they're doing. The other part of that, um, that uh, debate in Matthew 23, Jesus says, you are cast off to hell because you killed the prophets in the past and you're going to murder them in the future. So I'm thinking like, okay, do we really want Jesus to be, to be condemning a group of people for something that their ancestor did? He says, you are descendants of those who killed the prophets and I'm going to send you prophets in the future and you're going to crucify them. That's, that's classical Aristotle and Cicero build up a straw man don't get specific. Don't tell the Pharisees exactly what the problem is, but have some vague thing about, yeah, 400 years ago, the time of Jeremiah, you were killing the, pro your ancestors were killing the prophets. Therefore, you're descendants of them. You're going to hell. And in the future, you're going to do the same. That to me is actually not good for Jesus. Uh, so that, that is math. That's the author of Matthew to me. Okay, Kerry, so, can I jump in here a little yeah, bit please. and talk a little bit about, just for our readers, who, our listeners may know this, about the gospel composition, because what it, it sort of undergirds some of Trevin's arguments here. This notion—it's worth noting that all of our gospels are written at the earliest thirty years after um, Jesus preached. Okay, and and again, we know from we we know that some of them are white eyewitnesses. Luke tells us he's not an eyewitness, but got his story from eyewitnesses. But the thing to be aware of is nothing we have in the gospels was written down by people. As you know, there was nobody writing down Jesus as he went through there. These are all they circulated orally. And for you and I, we're used to being in an incredibly literate environment where everything's written down. It's hard for us sometimes to think through how oral the ancient world is. And so yeah. when, you, when we talk about the gospel authors like Mark and Matthew and Luke and even John, what they have is they have these oral traditions about Jesus that have been circulating all throughout the Jesus movement, people who were there. All the early Christianity, people who saw Jesus, walked with Jesus, saw him resurrected, these eyewitnesses, they have their stories. What the Gospels then do is take those stories and write them down with a specific perspective. And so what Matthew seems to be doing here is Matthew has authentic <laughs> Jesus tradition. And there is no doubt from the Gospels, there is occasionally tension between Jesus and some of the Pharisees. They don't always agree on their halakha. Their legal readings are not always the same. Now, I don't think it's to the level that we sometimes put it on there, but there's definitely disagreement. So Matthew has these traditions, these stories that come about Jesus from the eyewitnesses. And as he's writing it down, because of the circumstances he's in, 
this kind of Pharisaic right. Christian movement. Matthew then selects those and really highlights that because that's the point he's trying to make from the authentic tradition from Jesus. Right. So I think there are two points here that, that are worth that noting and, and coming back to the, the, the question for you, Trevin, that, that is, one, there's a choice of what are we choosing from all the available things that happened and were said? What are we choosing to write? And typically that's chosen because you have a point you're trying to make, right? And, and a number of points, like John is choosing stories for some of the points he's trying to make and some of the themes he's hitting on, Matthew as well. And I would agree that some of this, and I would also very much agree that I think the biggest challenge the early church faces, and in some ways it causes the schism that leads to many uh, uh, of the things that we would throw in as, a, as going into apostasy, is this, this schism over uh, the law of Moses and Gentiles and so on. I, I think it's like the rift in the church and the, the, the big issue. Um, and so we're, it's not surprising to find stories being included that address this issue, right? The, the, the second thing is to say, okay, so Matthew chose these stories or whoever might want to, maybe Matthew's written some things down and it's one of his followers that then puts the book together. Who's the Moroni of the Mormon, you know, or the Moroni right. finishes the book yeah. of Mormon, however that works, right? Um, chose these stories, but is he, th does Jesus really say uh, you're a whited sepulcher? Does he really say you're straining at gnats? Or is that something that someone created in order to make their point? And, and I think that's the question that our audience is going to have based on, on what we've been talking about. So what would you say? Yeah, and, I, and I can add, I can add a, a few little points um, that I just thought of. We, in all of the texts we have in Josephus uh, and everywhere else, you have a case where there are several places where um, the populace riots against the temple establishment. Oh, yeah. And the high priest. Okay, right? The Sadducees are deeply unpopular. But yeah, yeah, the, yeah. the Sadducees. The, temple, the Sadducees, the temple establishment, the high priest, and Herod, they do, or they do with Pilate. And, and it's, yeah. it's all over the place. And, and these are massive riots that become, they go, they, they go to war and tens of thousands of people, if Josephus is not uh, embellishing, are killed. Yeah. Now, it's interesting to me if the populace wouldn't put up with this kind of heavy-handed corruption where you have Pharisees chasing Galilean holy men around Galilee on the Sabbath saying you can't eat that corn, or they're trying to stone women. Like, if they're that bad and they're not evil, uh, and you have people like Peter willing to pull out a, a, a dagger and protect Jesus, like, why don't we see even one case in Josephus or the Gospels where there's any kind of uh, tension or a fight. Like you have Pharisees showing up, interrupting Jesus's sermon in one of the Gospels, and he and the whole crowd is there. Nobody's mad. Nobody's mad at this Pharisee. They accept him, and he invites Jesus over to his meal for an honored guest. Like, you know, it's, so that's number one. We don't see any of those in, uh, instances. And then there's another case where Jesus comes into the temple and he's contending with the temple priest, and this is in all three Gospels, not John, but it's in the other three, where the chief priests come to Jesus and they want to arrest him, but it says that the populace were, uh, that they were scared of the populace. And so they didn't arrest him and they left, and then they send back Pharisees to trap him in his words. But the question I have is, why are they sending back Pharisees to talk to Jesus if the populace and Jesus didn't trust them? And then you get, you get Matthew and you get Luke saying that, but then sorry, Matthew and Mark saying that, but by the time you get to Luke, he doesn't say they sent back Pharisees. He says they sent back spies pretending to be righteous men. 
pretending to be Pharisees. Uh, right. So we can dig into all that, but it's just, it's case after case after case where people are, are, are either warning Jesus of danger. Um, they are trying to give him a pass like Nicodemus. They're trying to say he needs a better trial or they are calling him master or teacher. Um, and then if you add it, add it to what Josephus and other people are saying, it doesn't add up that, you know, it doesn't make sense to me where we can take Matthew 23 and sort of vague, like highly inflated rhetorical claims and just throw out all the other data that we have about how Pharisees engage with the populace, engage with Jesus, they disappear in the trial. Uh, if yeah. they were there at the trial, he probably would have been free, right? Because yeah. they, if, if yeah. we take what you know the other Pharisees are doing. Yeah, I so, agree with that. And, I, and Jeff will talk about that quite a bit, I'm sure. But. I think to add to this point, two things. One, Kevin, and then I actually want to talk about your question there about did Jesus say what he says in Matthew 23? Because I think that I think that I think that in some of that that's a bigger question even than Pharisees. But it's worth uh, oh yeah oh yeah true. But you know, have you ever had the experience where you run into somebody who's not a Latter Day Saint, who then says inevitably, Latter Day Saints believe this, right? And you say, I I don't believe that. And they say, No no no, Latter Day Saints believe this. And you're like, I I I I don't. And they take yeah. you to somewhere, you know, something journal discourses or something. Um, We've been talking a little bit here, and obviously we're just simplifying for things. But one thing that's very clear is the Pharisees are not a monolith. That's that's okay. the point I wanted to make. Very good. The, the, there's no group. The Pharisees. There's no. There's no. There's no official. There's no handbook instructions. There's no hierarchy. There's. No. It's. It, it's a collection of like-minded people who broadly. And, and again, you think about this in terms of again, talk about some of arguments, right? If we see, and there's good reason to in some ways, you know, a, a continuity between Pharisees and the rabbis of the Mishnah. I mean, the Mishnah is an argument in print. Yeah. They don't agree on, on all kinds of things. That's yes. kind of the point of, yeah. the, of this kind of discussion. And so, and actually, Daniel Boyarin, who's another, he's a Jewish scholar who's done some work in Mark and things like that. He's a, a rabbinic guy who's done some work in New Testament. Um, Boyarin points out, as he reads it, for him, all the interactions between Ju Jesus and the Galilean rabbis, the Galilean Pharisees, is good, clean, fun. Yeah, it's, it's right. just good holocaust debate. Exactly, yeah. holocaust debate. But the Jerusalem Pharisees are the ones that he sees are the Pharisees that he actually sees those difficulties and he sees that kind of being. And so that they come north and start imposing their halakha on the Galileans. And that's where the um, where the problems start to start. From a, And I think there's virtue in seeing that when we see the Pharisees, there may be even different groups that Jesus is interacting with. And yes. it's worth noting that Matthew 23 is centered in Jerusalem, not in the Galilee. And so it may be that, and, and, sort of, and, and kind of your question about, did Jesus say that? I mean, the first question I always ask myself is, well, how would we know? Yeah, that's right. Right, that's I mean, right. Like, like, like we weren't there. Matthew may have been there. The final form of Matthew certainly wasn't there, right? You know, and so yeah. and so it's a question of any time we get Jesus' words in any of the gospels, they're going to be a reconstruction based on this oral passing down. Right. And and who knows who added what later and so right, exactly. And so and so we can say, and again, one of the great advantages of Latter-day Saints is because we believe the Bible is the word of God, but we don't believe that the Bible is the inerrant God wrote it himself, word of God, 
we believe that all scripture is a result of inspiration and humanity and having conversation, we can talk both about the inspiration, the words of Jesus, but we can also say, but maybe, maybe this reflects more Matthew than it does reflect Jesus. Even though it's very clear that Jesus does struggle with at least certain Pharisees. Yeah, and, and certain practices that certain Pharisees have. So maybe we can take this then to the next thing I, I kind of wanted to go to and, and wrap this up a little bit and just move there. So I think it's really important to, to recognize not only are the Pharisees a diverse group who argue with each other, um, but even within any group, however good or bad that group is, you have some people who are doing better than others, right? So I know Latter-day Saints who people might call hypocrites. And I know Latter-day Saints who are actually trying to be very, very good. And in their trying to be very good, sometimes they come up with what I would call uh, uncharitable, ridiculous, or legalistic interpretations of what we should do. But they're, they're Latter-day Saints who are trying, right? So I think we have to kind of understand that. And there probably are some Pharisees who are not either, well, probably behaving well, but not intending well, and in some ways not behaving well because they're probably trying to uh, get into what I'm about to ask about. So, and I, I can't remember which one of you uh, mentioned this. I think you actually both touched on it, but it, it does seem to me that there are times, and again, especially with uh, it, when we see Jesus in Judea or Jerusalem, uh, that we see power struggles going on. Power struggles between the Pharisees and the Sadducees, power struggles between the Sanhedrin and Jesus, uh, and that would include, I think sometimes we see power struggles. I don't know that we can say all Pharisees. I don't want to lump them all in. But I think there are some times where we see Pharisees who are in a power struggle with Jesus. And, and this is to be expected when you have, in my opinion, it's to be expected when you have a culture where you have charismatic individuals with followers. And to some degree, your success is judged by do you have a lot of followers. And Jesus is becoming a very charismatic person with a lot of followers. And so other people will feel threatened by that. I think that's just human nature, right? And so in my opinion, I think we, we see sometimes where there are some Pharisees, and I'm not going to say all Pharisees, but some Pharisees who seem to be looking for ways to engage in a power struggle. That's just my opinion. I'd love to know what both of your thoughts are on, on, are on that matter. Do we see that kind of a thing or am I making this up? What, what are your thoughts? Uh, so why don't we, Avram, you were just uh, talking a little bit. What if we go, Trevin, and then we can go back to you, Avram. So. Okay, Perfect. so this will this will reveal my emotion. And if I'm ever dogmatic about something, it'd be, it might be this. I would I would hesitate. So theoretically, you're certainly right, Carrie, but I would hesitate to, to even to say that um, or try to make a case that in Judea or in Jerusalem, those Pharisees might have been different, and therefore they, they could have been people that wanted Jesus dead, and there's this power struggle. Well, I'm not even talking about wanting him dead. I, I think that's a separate issue. But but wanting that th th there's a power struggle, even in terms of uh, followers or interpretation. OK, yeah. so even there, I'd say, number one, I think Jesus, they saw him as an ally. Um, and when I say that, you're right They're Like there's there's a certain spectrum with anybody. But if somebody's so far out the spec off clear off on the side of the spectrum, the other Pharisees might not accept them. Um, it depends on what we, how we know the parameters of that group and what it means to be part of that group. But I'd like to see the data or have somebody work it out in real time on how this would work. Because what we have is Pharisees following Jesus to Jerusalem. And this is very telling because we have a story where Jesus comes to the Mount of Olives. Right when he gets to Jerusalem, he goes down the Mount of Olives and there's a big parade. And his followers are yelling out, Son of David, you know, Jesus is here, the Messiah. 
And who is it that says, keep your disciples quiet? Well, it's Pharisees who are with them. And usually we interpret that to be something negative, like, oh, there are the Pharisees again, jabbing Jesus, yapping at his heels. But um, I see that as them saying, look, we're entering Jerusalem. You can't be screaming out like this. You're going to get yourself killed. Again, they're trying to save him. The reason why I go with that interpretation is because in Jericho, before he got to Jerusalem, the same thing happened. They're coming, they're approaching Jericho, and somebody yells out, Son of David. And it was uh, and it was one of his disciples, some of his disciples that say, Be quiet. Like they're entering another political hub in Jericho. These are two political and priestly hubs, Jericho and Jerusalem. And these stories are taken from Elisha and Elijah. In 2 Kings 2, you have Elijah and you have Elisha, who's his disciple, going to Jericho. Somebody says something about Elijah. And Elisha says, the prophet Elisha says, be quiet. Like in the Greek, it's sigese, sigese, be quiet. It's the same language that the Pharisees use. So I'm saying these are stories about disciples or followers or uh, friends, allies who are trying to help and save Jesus. And so um, I would, every, every pericope or episode, even in Jerusalem, um, if there were Pharisees who wanted to stone a woman, I'd like to see how that would work and play out because even that story it's not in the original, you know, this is like a fourth century story. Even if possible, we could push it back to the second century, uh, you know, where, where Pharisees are trying to stone the woman. That doesn't fit everything we know about the Pharisees in general, the Pharisaic system. That's a late story. So I, I, if I could work it out in my mind and do some um, historian work, I I'd still, I'm still can't piece together how that power struggle would work when I see Jesus and Pharisees in general as an ally. And you have people like Nicodemus. You have the Pharisees that follow him there because if Pharisees follow him there and they like Jesus and then the other Pharisees are contending in a power struggle and they're jealous of Jesus's uh, uh, growth, then now you have two factions warring against each other. I mean, we see that in the Talmud about Pharisees fighting each other or, you know, or different yeah. schools. But I, I don't know. If we saw I, that in the first OK, yeah, I think it's very, very possible. But anyway, yeah, go ahead. Go ahead, Alvaro. So I think, and, and the question is really, when we talk in terms of this kind of what you're going to do, and also kind of thinking, when you're talking about power struggles, the question becomes, what are you fighting over, right? And you suggested, Carrie, you're fighting over followers. And this is a little bit where I think, where I think Jesus and where Christianity and the Jesus movement is part and parcel with, but also different from this thing and, and and where maybe those tension lines that eventually as I think eventually do schism from the Jerusalem Council come through is with Jesus, especially with Jesus in Jerusalem, especially with Jesus after the crucifixion. The question is no longer a question of whose halakha are you gonna follow? The question suddenly is. Is Jesus the Messiah? But but this idea that suddenly I think I think if you do see power struggles, those powers begin to come because of shifting questions. It's not about as long as it's about halakha. Like I said, I think Quaron's right. I think it's good, clean, fun. He has his halakha. His disciples have halakha. I disagree with them. There may be you know poaching back and forth and sniping. You get that, right? You know that's just that's, that's like scholarship, right? You know you follow you follow somebody else, uh, whatever. But suddenly the question becomes, is Jesus the Messiah? Is he king? And that's suddenly no longer a halakhic question. 
And that's suddenly, and, and of course, it is worth noting that when it becomes fully full, as Trevon points out, that's really when the Sadducees uh, move in. Right. Because that's a question that they're going to be much more worried about. Because um, we do find, we find other, again, so you got new to whatever. There are other messiahs in this period who get other followings, some of whom have Pharisaic or rabbinic followers, some of whom don't. Some of the, the disagreement, even in the rabbit, you know, for example, in a, you know, Bar Kokhba, who's probably the next big messiah after this, Bar Kokhba has even sages like Rabbi Akiva saying, oh, yeah, you're the messiah. And other sages saying, other rabbis saying, no, he's not um, Akiva. You know, the, the grass can grow on your cheeks before we actually see the messiah. And so for me, that's where the power struggles become is not when it moves from questions of legal interpretation, which is where the Pharisees are like, yeah, we're, we're all on the same team here, guys, to questions of, are you the Messiah? And so I think Trevin may be right. They're trying to save his life. But I think there are also going to be Pharisees who do not, we know for a fact there are Pharisees, and maybe the bulk of Pharisees who do not accept Jesus as the Messiah. That's right. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. And that, you're right. That's that's the what, at the end becomes the key element. I think a lot of the the interesting little uh, discussions and sometimes frictions, and I don't know that they're as big a friction as, as we uh, are, because as you say, it's a culture that's used to having these debates uh, all along the way are, are not necessarily about that issue. But at the end, that becomes the issue. So I, I'd agree. But that, that does bring me to another question I'd like to ask both of you, and maybe we'll let Avram go first this time and then Trevin. Um, but uh, would you say that there are times where the Savior, and we can separate this, the Savior or his followers, see at least some Pharisees, and again, we're going to say there are lots of different Pharisees, lots of different stripes and whatever else, right? And and actually, this, there's something I wanted to say even before we got into this. So I'm going to come back to that question. I just want to just say this for our audience that, uh, and, and you can disagree with me. I don't I think you will, but if, if correct me if I'm wrong. We should understand that the and Trevin really kind of said this already, but I just want to get it out there. The the general populace agrees and follows Pharisaism just in general. And so if if Jesus is getting followers, most of them are coming from not necessarily being a Pharisee, but a Pharisaic background, as it were, right? This is the way they live their lives. And and so we have to understand that about his followers, all right. But even with that. Would you say there are times that, that Jesus or his close disciples feel that at least some Pharisees are too legalistic? And, and I'm thinking in terms of uh, healing on the Sabbath discussions. And, and yes, they're halakha, all right? So I'm not saying hate each other or anything. These are maybe <laughs> halakhic discussions, but uh, healing on the Sabbath, gathering weed on the Sabbath, these kinds of things. Okay, I'll, you said I'll start here. First of all, I... I struggle with the word legalistic. Okay. And okay. that's why I use it because I've heard you struggle with it before. So. It's been used too often as a code word for anti-Catholic, anti-Jewish discourse. It actually uses, because again, there's a great scholar, Jay-Z Smith, who talks about this. A lot of what we think through in terms of religious studies broadly can be traced back to Protestant Catholic polemics against each other. And oftentimes in the study of Judaism, Judaism has been used as a stalking horse to attack Catholicism. 
um, and and ancient and it's it's it, again um, the book is uh, Drudgery Divine by Jay Z Smith. It's, it's one of the great ones in um, in our whatever. But uh, and maybe I'll just uh, interrupt real quickly to make a point that I, I think is worth making. It's kind of an aside, but I think it's an important point uh, because Alvin's talked about being anti-Semitic or anti-Catholic, and I think it's possible to be anti-Semitic and about the past and not in the present, right? So I would guess there are plenty of people who say, no, no, Jews today, I have no problem with. Or, you know, I love Jews today. But those Jews in Jesus' day, all of them were bad, right? Uh, so that's that's a, a, a that's still stereotyping and, 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 and problematic. And so I'm bringing that up because as our audience listens, most of them are saying, okay, that's not me. It's not me. Uh, and it's worth thinking about, is there an element of it that is you as you think about things in the past, I, I just want them to think of that as you continue this discussion. For example, just as an example of how this can be accidental, you get something as innocuous as the Living Scriptures videos, where you have Jesus is marked as a basically Northern European, and the Pharisees are all marked as Jewish, yeah. right? They have, even though in their ancient context, they are both equally Jewish. Yes, we mark one Jewish and one not, and and that's that's problematic. Yeah. So, Avram, so, Avram, yeah. if you mention that, if you mention that, I just want to like I, I watched some of these clips, and it's not you. You didn't mention specifics in some of those scenes, those living scriptures uh, videos. Jesus' skin is extremely white, and then his interlocutors have dark hair, long, crooked noses, and sort of like nefarious aura about them. Yeah, they look like. Illustrations from the Proto Elders of Zion, honestly, and it's it's a little bit problematic sometimes. Anyway, but so so that's why we need to be careful talking about legalism. And again, the question is: Is Jesus's halacha less binding, more binding, more strict, less strict? And the answer is: Well, it depends. In some places, absolutely. Jesus is, um, seems to go for a more, what we would call a, a less stringent legal ruling. Um, in other places, so, so for example, Sabbath laws. Sabbath laws are apparently, Jesus is apparently less stringent on that. Okay? Although part of one of the intriguing things about Jesus is, at least as Mark paints it, Jesus' disciples do not do this. Jesus does not. Jesus is more stringent than his disciples. The question always is, why do your followers eat with unwashed hands? The question is not, why, are you, why didn't you wash your hands? Implying that Jesus did wash his hands, but hmm. he does not um, enforce that halakha on his followers. And that, I think, is in some ways where Jesus is most distinctive in his ancient world, is the fact that he, even though he appears to be more stringent than his followers, he does not enforce his stringent halakha, his stringent legal rulings, on his followers. Which, by the way, brings us then to Paul, where Paul's point in, say, 1 Corinthians is, look, you and I both know that they're, um, that they're, you know, that food given to idols, idols aren't real. It's not a big deal. But for those people who don't know that, we don't eat meat sacrificed to idols, so that lest by any means I should offend my brother. That seems to be the distinction is not for Jesus, for, as, as I read it. It's not that Jesus wants, and you see something in, this, in the church today with something like the word of wisdom, which is a 100% halakhic question. The question in some ways is not 
you can be a good Latter-day Saint and not drink caffeine because of the word of wisdom. You can be a good Latter-day Saint and drink caffeine saying, oh, that's unnecessary for me in terms of my understanding of it. What you can never do is use your position as a way of saying, I am better than the other person. Oh, you're taking away my fun. I, I'm taking away, I, I actually Jesus did it first. So, uh, All right. so for me, so, so again, so you know, is, is he stringent? Like, you know, but you something like, like Jesus' divorce law is incredibly stringent. It's so stringent, I can think of nowhere besides medieval Europe it has ever been lived. And even there, it was, you know, questionable whether they were doing that or not, right? They, they, I mean, we've never done in the church, nothing like Jesus's um, divorce law. Uh, we have a fairly easy divorce law comparatively, but Jesus' divorce law is way more stringent than we see any other Pharisees or anybody else in antiquity um, doing. And so I think it's a mistake to say, it's, it's, you can say some place where Jesus, absolutely, Jesus is less stringent. Others, you have to say, no, wait a minute, Jesus is more stringent here. But I think for me, the most compelling thing, and again, I see this in Paul, I see this, especially in Paul's fight. I see this in Jesus' whole thing. The point is not necessarily what the halakha is, but the point is you can never use the halakha to put yourself above somebody else. And I think when he has struggles with the Pharisees, that's actually his problem. When they use halakha as a weapon, when they use legal, how, how you live the commandments as a weapon. Excellent. All right. Uh, Trevin. That's uh, just piggyback and... Uh, I agree with everything Avram said, but I would I would add also that if there were times or with certain debates that Pharisees were very stringent, but we would look back and say, you know, that's kind of petty, like they're worried about all this minutia, even if that's the case, and Jesus is debating with Pharisees, um, I think our audience and everybody should keep in mind that we, we should be very careful when we draw lines from strictness and then wanting to enforce that strictness with harsh penalties and yeah because again we see uh we see a record through the through the sources of a leniency and punishment and if there was a, a historical debate you know we jesus study scholars you know historical jesus scholars they, they look at the data and they say what did jesus really say what did he really do and you try to unpack it what's embellished later on what's early if there ever was an early historical debate going on between Jesus and Pharisees, it could have been what we see bouncing through the text, and that is the discussion of who belongs in our mealtime symposia, mealtime setting, where we wash each other's feet, or we anoint, you know, this is this is common practice where the host would invite an honored guest, they would, um, you know, they, they might wash their feet, or they might purify in some way, might anoint their head with oil, they would sit them right close to them, and they would eat and recline, they'd lean over and recline, this is what we get in the Last Supper, and then they would debate, just like the philosophers did, they would debate, and it's these debates that Avram knows a lot about with his training, and this is, this, this defines rabbinic Judaism, a lot of that rabbinic literature is one long debate, and that's not, I don't see the, the level of vitriol with those settings. Even in Ben Sirah, this is a text that predates the New Testament, predates Jesus, talks about this setting where you eat with like-minded people, you, you eat with righteous menaces, and you do not, um, you do not, uh, you're not hostile in your merrymaking with your guests. Okay, so there's that, uh, that's that Greco-Roman Jewish mealtime setting, and I think that's, that's the setting in which they're debating. That's not any conflict there is not on the same level 
that Jesus has with the corrupt uh, temple establishment. It's like absolutely not on the same ballpark. And so I, people have to be careful not to, when we say, oh, they're legalistic or the Pharisees are like this, therefore they are evil, they're wicked. Um, uh, and I'll, I'll mention a little bit of that in our final closing of, of pack, packaging it. But why don't you just go ahead and do that? Because we've been going long enough. Maybe we better get to that. So. Okay, I'll do I'll, I'll tell this to my students in class. And basically what it is, is that the reason why this is very important, in addition to what's already been said, is that if we, um, if we make the scriptures and the people in the scriptures two-dimensional and superficial, then we risk defaulting to that anti-Semitic conclusion. Even if we're not anti-Jewish, anti-Semitic, we default to it by sloppy interpretations or weak interpretations. And, and, and what we're doing is we inadvertently cast the entire Jewish nation as evil, corrupt people. You know, whether it's the temple establishment, the Sadducees, the Pharisees, because I see the Pharisees as a very moral and ethical people. And even if the Pharisees were proto-rabbis, they, they didn't become the rabbis, but the system, that kind of system, the debate, the legal system kind of went into the rabbinic period. Jews today, Jews who follow Jewish law today are, in a sense, Pharisaic or rabbinic Jews. And so we, we have to be very careful to, uh, to just accept the text and say, no, they wanted to stone women. They wanted to kill Jesus. They were legalistic. They were sort of these neurotic people who were causing all kinds of mayhem. And therefore, Jews deserve what they got all throughout the Middle Ages. Um, that It culminates in the Holocaust. I, I don't want to risk being sensational. But those interpretations all throughout Christian Europe, going back to the Jewish leaders who reject, rejected Jesus, killed Jesus, those that's the real identity of the Jewish people. And you have a synagogue in 2019, you have a shooter, a synagogue shooter in Philadelphia, or what is it, Pittsburgh, maybe it's Pittsburgh. He goes in, he guns down 11 people. And when the law enforcement looks at his social media page, it says, John 8, 44, I did this, or I will do this, or I hate the Jews because they are sons of the devil, John 8, 44. So I don't like uh, when we have blog posts or different, you know, LDS live, there's an LDS living article on 10 reasons, 10 ways you're being a Pharisee and how to stop now. I cringe because I know the history of what happened to the Jewish people when we attack their leaders in their formative period as being sons of the devil, corrupt, want Jesus killed, want to stone women. And that to me is uh, it's a travesty. So we are really, uh, I hesitate to say it this way, but if we're not careful, we are after the fact contributing to all that persecution for centuries yeah. by, by sloppy I interpretation. I, Thank you. I don't think you're even strong enough, Trevin, in some ways yeah. on that. Um, I, I just, I, I, I absolutely, we, I, I, I often call it almost accidental anti-Semitism. And part of me, we, we all push back and say, and say, oh no, I'm not. And, and, and you're not. But this has been, as Trevin kind of points out, this has been the cup that Christianity and therefore the West has drunk from for millennia. And we don't get rid of that just by, you know, and, and, and again, part of it, you know, this whole podcast is the scriptures are real. And what that means is we're, when we read the scriptures, we're reading about real people. We're reading about, and frankly, I don't think they were, but even, you know, even if the Pharisees were as bad as we sometimes read them as being, what justification do we have for this, right? For, you know, oh, good. 
they're bad. We make them, you know. I remember two stories. One of which, so I was sitting, I was sitting in another, I was sitting in a religion class at BYU. I was observing another teacher. It doesn't matter who the class is. There's nothing, there's nothing about the teacher. Nothing at all about the teacher. But it was it was a New Testament class, it was a gospels class. And we were doing kind of like we're doing now. The teacher's doing the run-up to the gospel, how we got there, the various groups, Sadducees and Pharisees. And the teacher was talking about oral law, about this interpretive tradition on scripture. And two students in front of me, one of them turned to his friend and said and whispered religious cancer. And I about lied. It wasn't my classroom, so I didn't do anything um, about it. <clears throat> but this idea that you could say that about another religious tradition, I mean, this is the kind of thing that, that, that I mean, part of this is this recognition that anti-Semitism is real and, and it's rooted in how we read the New Testament. How you read the scriptures matters. And sometimes we just do, we kind of excuse ourselves. We do this for all kinds of things. Nephites versus Lamanites, right? You know, but how you read scripture matters. And there is no excuse under God's perspective for that kind of um, divisiveness. We cannot use the New Testament as a weapon against people who are real today. And people do. I mean, you, this is not something, you know, as I, I appreciate Trevor Miguel's specific examples. This is not something that's sort of theoretical. Oh, people might use the New Testament to maybe say mean things to Jews. That's not what's happening. People are using the New Testament to justify actual atrocities. And brothers and sisters, the audience there, we need to be better than that. We can be better than that, but that's why it's so important for us to step back from all of this and say, how we read this matters. And we have to be careful with how we read it. Good, good. Thank you both. And I, I couldn't agree more. Uh, maybe I'll just do a couple of things to wrap up, and some of which is only tangentially about this, and, and then maybe a little bit about that. But uh, first of all, I, I, I want to highlight a couple of things that we've alluded to. Well, one we've alluded to, one we haven't, that I think make it so that we don't read uh, some of the, these encounters in the New Testament as carefully as we should. One of these comes from a phrase in the way the King James translators have translated, and, I, and I'm not criticizing them, they're just being faithful to the language, but in, in uh, John, you will read tons of times where it says the Jews did this or the Jews said that. Uh, and and what and you guys can tell me if you think I'm, I'm wrong, but I, I feel fairly confident in this. Typically, when John is saying that he means Jewish leaders and usually Sadducees, maybe yeah. every time Sadducees. That's basically when you, when you read the Jews, think Sadducees. That's who he means, not the entire Jewish nation. And I think that's one of the difficulties we often have is because. John uses that phrase to mean Sadducees. He means really the people who are running that that establishment, the, the temple and so on. Uh, but we hear it and think whole nation. And that that's problematic. And that can lead to some of the, the things that you've been talking about. So I just ask the audience to be aware of that as you read John. Um, second, be aware of this this tradition that everyone has referred to a Holocaust debate <laughs> tradition for us. Like we would we would cringe at that. And if Sunday school became this well, why do you guys do it this way? Justified. Okay, but this is why we just, and we debate it, right? We would not have a debate on Sunday school. People would go home and cry and whatever else, and the bishop would have to do all Maybe, maybe really cool if we did that way, um, Gary. <laughs> maybe, maybe, it improve, maybe it would improve Sunday school if we did it that way. <laughs> it, it might. It might. But it's not our culture, right? It is their culture. 
And, and I think if you'll look for it, you'll see dozens and dozens and dozens of times in the New Testament where there's a discussion between the Savior and maybe the Pharisees or just other people that is this halakha discussion like, you're saying this. And, and the tradition is you say, well, I do this because of this reason and these people have agreed with it, right? And no, I say this because of this reason and these people have agreed with it and so on and so on. That's typical style. That's how it goes. And so just read it for what it is, is what I would say. Um, and maybe I'd wrap up with this. And it's just something I've, I've done for a number of years just because I've been in settings, especially at the Jerusalem Center, but other places where one teacher is saying this and another teacher is saying this about the Pharisees and the students who are coming to me in the New Testament class saying, what am I supposed to do? And I'll tell them, listen, listen to all these things that we've talked about, what they thought before, what other people have said. And then with each time you encounter a story in the New Testament, read it with fresh eyes and decide for yourself, uh, keeping in mind that, that there are different, uh, you know, different opinions even among the Pharisees that some people, uh, even uh, within a very, very good movement, don't do as well as they should. Keep all of these things in mind. Decide for yourself about that, but more important than deciding for yourself what, what the Savior is thinking about Pharisees in general or those specific Pharisees. Instead, I would suggest ask, okay, what should I learn from what was said here? There, there's got to be a way that this can apply to me in my life. Forget about, well, you don't have to forget about it. I, I, I try and investigate. We all try and investigate, okay, what's really going on with this interaction with the Pharisees? But, but for me, the more important question is, what should I learn from this? Um, and uh, that's that's what I would suggest to our uh, our audience to do. So uh, this is longer than I thought it would be, but more fun than I thought it would be, and I thought it'd be fun. So, Harry, uh, can I Harry, can I mention just one brief thing? I would sure. kick myself if I forget to mention this because on one occasion when I gave this kind of a lecture, this was outside the university. It was in the, the community. I gave this kind of lecture, and there was somebody sitting on the front row um, who looked mad most of the time. And then he raised his hand in a very dogmatic way. He said, the Book of Mormon says that entire nation, the Jewish nation, killed Jesus. So, mm -hmm. and it, so I, again, we have to go straight back to Second Nephi and where it says that and to look at it. And, you know, we have to be a little more sophisticated in our thinking because it even, even there, it says, yes, he used the word nation. But when we say, if someone said, North Korea is a oppressive nation or something or a corrupt nation. We're not talking about the whole population. We're talking about the leadership. And the, right. that passage even says that this is the small part of that nation who had authority to crucify or at least work with Rome to crucify. And it mentions priestcraft. This is the corrupt Judean establishment in or the temple establishment in Jerusalem. This is not the pedestrian Jews out in the countryside. This, absolutely right. not. Just like it's not the pedestrian Korean who is so happy that they're being oppressed, right? I mean, right. Yeah, that's that, that, that's a good that's a good analogy. I appreciate that. Thank you. Thank you very much. So hopefully this has been helpful for our audience, and uh, and it gives you an opportunity to read lots of passages in the New Testament with fresh eyes and and draw more out of it, uh, and receive some inspiration as you study and and read and come to your own conclusions and hopefully your own inspired lessons. Uh, and let's uh, draw more power out of the scriptures. So thank you, everybody. Thank you, Gary. Appreciate it.